Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This week, Ethan and I continue our discussion of ancillary justice. We're looking at the politics and ideology within the book, Breck and Sivarden's roles, and the structure of the book. Then Ethan presses me on my initial dissatisfaction with the conclusion and tells us about a series he returns to a lot. Two quick notes before we begin. First, I'm still working on editing and finding the voice of the show. New this week, musical interludes to divide the sequences. If you have opinions about sound or format, please let me know. Second, I would love to have more guests on the show. We can talk about a book or genre you love, your history with speculative fiction, or whatever else you'd like. If you're interested or have a friend who might be interested, let me know at cabbagesandkings.audio slash guest. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the second part of this discussion of ancillary justice. Spoilers. That'll be my disclaimer at the beginning. It's been out for a long time. It won a lot of awards. You should have read it. <laughs> if you haven't read it by now. Then. <laughs> if you haven't read it by now, go read it and then come back and listen to this. There are some relatively explicit political observations in the book. You don't say. The, <laughs> the lieutenant and Skiat, I think it's Skiat Awur, uh, have some discussions about colonialism, about who gets to participate in the Ratch culture, who from a colonized society gets to, for instance, take the aptitude test that will move them along. Uh, mm-hmm. I think not entirely surprisingly, the people who get to take the tests are the people who had power before and sort of facilitated the ratch coming in. Mm-hmm. Certainly a complaint leveled against books, and I think sometimes fairly, is that they spend a lot of time having a couple of characters talking and arguing about politics in ways that make them kind of the mouthpiece for the author and not really advancing the structure of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think there's very little of that in ancillary justice, I would say. And what there is there, I think, serves pretty well to sort of fill in those characters, mm-hmm. which is doing a lot more than just being a mouthpiece for the author's political views. I mean, you've got to have some background for Lieutenant On's ideas about uh, fairness and justice and that kind of thing that motivate what she does um, in the book. So I, I think it works pretty well in, in ancillary justice. I think if there's a complaint there, it would apply more to ancillary sword where there's not so much talking about it, although there is conversation between Breck and Sivarden, but where that type of discussion plays a much more central role in the book and the plot of the book as well. Who, who is allowed to do what? Um, what roles do the kind of conquered cultures play is a huge part of the ancillary sword plot and discussion in general, I think. I think I, I very much agree with you. Yeah, if there's a weakness uh, of ancillary sword, I would say that's probably it. Yes. <laughs> Not that we are discussing ancillary sword, but I mostly agree with you there that I think in general the discussions in justice do serve in a lot of ways to illuminate the character and that there are places where sword gets heavy-handed. Yeah, and no, I think it works really well in justice actually. It, yeah. It's I mean it's basically just really one one maybe two major discussions between between the two characters and I think I think it works really well um to explain especially explain what Lieutenant on um, is thinking and why she's acting the way she's acting. Mm. Can you think of other books that you've read that kind of directly brought out, or or maybe even media as a whole, that, that kind of directly brought out politics with that much nuance and success? Was it was it nuanced, I, I suppose, is the question. Well, okay, <laughs> maybe not nuanced, but in ways but, that were primarily driven at 
illuminating the characters and the the context for conflicts that are going on rather than sure i i think of something like heinlein as just occasionally taking dives into here let me preach at you for a while about the virtues of polyamory or why people should not be given citizenship until they've they've served in various ways yeah sure and i'm curious whether there's anybody you think has done it this this well or this successfully not really anybody that comes to mind immediately. I mean, I think there's a reason that this book won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. I mean, it's it's a really good book. And books that just kind of hit the pause button and preach at you for a little while. Um, you can be a really good book and do that, but it is certainly a strike against you, I would say. So I think it's just, I mean, I think that's a strength of, of the writing here. That Lucky just doesn't do that for the most part in this book. Okay. Yeah, I I think I agree, but I was just curious. I couldn't think of any. I have two further observations. I don't know if you will find any of them interesting or worth commenting on. One is that when I think about Sivarden, in many ways I read her as very passive um, and kind of following along, especially in the beginning. I mean, of course, at at the beginning, she's, you know, a, a drug addict who's not sure what to do with her life. And I read that as contrasted with this very active character, Breck, who's an AI. And I think in many cases where you had a AI-human pairing or a male and female pairing, if you read, say, Varden as male and Breck as female, which I do, and I don't know if that's... Yeah, I do too. That in both of those cases, you would expect the AI or the woman to be more passive and say, Varden, the the human man to be more active. And I read that as totally reversed within ancillary justice. Did that occur to you? Does it seem similar to you? Do you find it at all interesting or just, yes, that kind of happened to move on? Uh, yeah, no, I think it definitely is interesting. I think it's also interesting if you look at, if you compare their actions with their psychology. So if you look at their actions, Breck is extremely active and um, obviously in control of things um, is really more than human in, in most ways. Whereas, Sivarden is pretty passive and has a lot of issues. Um, is yeah, is as you described. But psychologically, like Sivarden is very entitled. Yes. And Breck is convinced that she is worthless, essentially, because she's because she's an ancillary um, huh. for the for the most part. And like, in fact, at the end of the book, it basically expects to die um, and doesn't understand why anybody bothered to save her life. So. There, so the psychology of the two characters contrasts pretty, pretty significantly with the way that they actually act or act out their, their roles, I would say. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what that says about how we interpreted their genders, but I guess you, would, you might characterize the way that Sivarden is entitled as a more male, um, as a more male psychology. You can't hear me grinning, but I've been kind of grinning and having wheels turning in my head ever since you described Breck as kind of seeing herself as more worthless and having less sense of self-worth and self-value, I wouldn't have articulated that at all. And Mm. one thing that this conversation is definitely inspiring in me is that I want to go back and reread Ancillary Justice. I think (laughs) there are, you've given me a bunch of new perspectives that I'm looking forward to rereading it with some of those perspectives in mind. I have nothing at all intelligent to say. I agree with you that Sybarden is very, very entitled. I think Lecky is very conscious of that and, and seeks to highlight that. Yeah, clearly. 
and it's a and it's a class based entitlement. I should yes. I should clarify, not yes. not a gender based entitlement. So, but that's that's really that's really interesting. Cool. Well, yeah. Last observation from me: I felt like this is one of the best novels I read, and in in terms of kind of fitting that form. And I've been sort of interested as I come off of reading huge amounts of multi-volume epics and Malazan <laughs> book, and I finally finished rereading all of Bill of Time. And I've been, and I'm reading a bunch of short stories now as well. I've been trying to read more of those. And so I've been trying to figure out what is the platonic ideal, for, for, for lack of a better word, what is the platonic ideal of a novel versus a short story versus a multi-volume sprawling epic. And Justice, I think, there's, there's the back-and-forth narrative structure, so each chapter for quite a while alternates between flashbacks to Justice of Torin versus the individual Breck. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, for me, there was the many, many, the couple hundred pages of work that Leckie did to get me to not care about gender so that she could get me to notice all the other pronouns and signifiers once we got to Wretch Empire, which was not quite as much of a of a payoff for you. But in general, it just it felt like this nailed novel really well. It had a couple characters that it developed well. It had a structure behind it. No, yeah, I completely agree. I thought it was great. And, and I mean, you described her as doing work on the gender stuff to, to, set, to set up the end. But, I mean, it wasn't work. It was just so well done. <laughs> it was, yes. I mean, it was sort of like a judo move or something. You just It didn't take any time or any space or didn't slow anything down um just it was really really great um and i think that there were more the gender examples that is the obvious one that everybody sees i think um i think there are more examples of that kind of thing in the book as well like specifically around the ai stuff that i talked about earlier and just not dealing with the whole technical question how many authors have written books like this and spent 150 pages talking computers about why like how the AI works. Who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. Um, it, yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic book. Yeah. Any other comments, observations, um, thoughts about Ancillary Justice? Uh, well, you, I, I, I heard that you uh, were not completely satisfied with the end. It, okay, yes. This is fair. <laughs> I was not completely satisfied with the end. And you pointed out early on that you think she does, Lucky does a really good job of raising questions and not trying to answer them. And I mostly agree. And one of the reasons I think that is that I feel like there's a little bit of an answer giving at the end. And after all of the... And you are right to say it is not work that Lucky is doing. It does not feel like work. It does not feel like the author preaching at us. But after all of the effort that has gone into building up the Ratch Society, building up that there is this empire, that there is this conflict within the empire because Manai has a couple of different personalities based on the ruler of the Ratch Empire having a couple of different ideas about how things should go forward and how to interact with different non-ratch. There's, there's so much nuance. There's so much depth. And at the end, basically, Breck pulls out a gun and starts shooting, and there's a big fight on a space station, and it's, it's a very 
well-written action scene in which lots of things blow up <laughs> and the heroes are rewarded and Breck is heroic and the Manai that we think we like better wins at least in this part. And Well, you got to think about the movie rights. <laughs> Do you have to think? So <laughs> the, the, the um, Ancillary Justice has been optioned, I believe, for I oh, think has a it? TV miniseries. A miniseries, um, or maybe that's not probably actually a, it's probably maybe, a better format. A TV show, but I I think that someone wants film rights, um, which I I would be curious about, but cautiously optimistic. Oh, I would not be optimistic. <laughs> but uh, you know, whatever. I mean, she and like you should make as much money as possible off this book. It's really I great. I definitely so. agree with that. Uh, and we are now getting a little bit aside from my point, which is I think that there is a common theme in a lot of particularly dystopian fiction, but lots of other fiction where the solution to a bad society or a society that has problems is to burn it all down and start over again. Mm -hmm. Sure. sure. And I think that there is a sense in which the big kind of emotionally satisfying conclusion to the novel. And I have said that I like the structure and to some extent, part of ending a novel well is is probably tying up a bunch of loose ends and giving, you know, having having some dramatic moments and certainly the fight on the space station gives us some dramatic moments. But to some extent I think that there's a narrative there that's once again we have this kind of corrupt empire there are problems in it let's burn things down. Yeah. That is how you confront those sorts of problems and I found that to the extent that I have a frustration with the book that just the way that it ended, I was hoping for something else in a book that blew up so many of my other expectations and my other thoughts about how the genre worked and about what you could do within the confines of the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it fair of me as a non-writer who doesn't have any <laughs> suggestion for what I would have liked to see instead to say, I wish this ending had also blown up my expectations in really cool ways. I don't know, but I do wish this ending had blown up my expectations in really cool ways. And it, it felt a little, little formulaic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a little, I guess I had a little different experience of the ending than you did, but I think we had two quite different experiences of the book, I would say, but I mean, I completely agree. There was a lot of stuff blowing up, a lot of shooting, plenty of suspense, which was in fairly stark contrast to the rest of the book, I would say. Although the although the scene where where um well wait we're just gonna spoil the entire thing, of course. But the scene the scene where Lieutenant An is is um, killed is, I would say, more suspenseful. Yes. And more kind of psychologically distressing, I guess. But what I did find very interesting about the conclusion of the book was that you find out that Breck's plan to destroy the Empire and get back at Manai does not really hinge on shooting anybody. <laughs> it hinges on telling Manai that she disagrees with herself. That's very true. Which then results in everything blowing up. And I, th I thought that was kind of interesting. It wasn't really what I expected, actually, but I, with maybe 100 pages to go, I wasn't sure what the hell was going to happen because, like, what can you do? Yeah. With this type of super powerful enemy, essentially, that is never is not all in one place and so can't be killed. And her plan was, of course, to kill Manai and, and how is she going to execute that plan? And the, and the end result was, well, she wasn't going to execute that plan. She had a slightly different uh, 
plan in mind. But she's not trying to create a better world. She is actually just trying to burn everything down because she just wants revenge, basically, is, is Breck's, uh, Breck's goal, right? Yes. And here's an interesting identity question. Literally, she plans to kill Manai. That is, I need to shoot a body. Right. Which is, I, th- I think, like, that's the precipitating event, as I remember, right? She pulls out the gun, and there are two Manais, and she shoots one of them. But the whole thing that's going on there is making Manai realize that there is this conflict, because in many ways, it is this, the conflict between the two Manais that caused On's death. Mm-hmm. That the two Manais were fighting, and then Manai had to test... Justice of Torin, one asks loyalty and deal with Lieutenant On. So there is, in the one sense, the literal, I'm going to kill Amanda Manai, which she says a number of times, literally shooting the body and, and killing one of the many aspects of Manai is kind of the plan, but also more broadly making Manai face the fact that she disagrees with herself. Right. And turning the Empire to civil war. Yeah. Because you're right, Breck does just want to burn it all down. Pretty much. I may be being persuaded to be less dissatisfied with the ending. And in fact, uh, I don't. I don't recall actually. I, I should reread that part. But I, if I recall correctly, she doesn't even shoot Manai until Manai orders her to shoot Manai. Right. And so, so one of the things about AIs apparently is that both sides of Manai have sort of uh, wired instructions into sort of override instructions into the brain of justice of Torin, And um, one of them actually was specifically wired into justice of Torin one ask. Right. That give the different factions of Anandra Manai the ability to control her behavior. What we come to think of perhaps in some sense as the good one, the good Manai, the slightly more peaceful one has specifically wired this instruction into one ask to that allows her to take control of her by singing. Um, and so when confronted with the reality that Manai disagrees with herself, the, the Manai that has, um, that can sing and control one ask takes control of her and t- orders her to shoot the other Manai. Yeah. So she doesn't even do it on, of her own volition, really. That's true. Interestingly enough, even though she's planned to the entire book. Which I guess leads to questions about why, whether when you go back to on being killed and Manai blowing up Justice of Torin, whether there is some significance to one ask being the survivor. And and I don't remember that scene well enough. Yeah, and it's never clear to us. It's stated, but um, from the point of view of Breck, and it's never really clear to us which half of Manai actually blew up Justice of Torin. Oh, see, I read that very clearly as the more, the more militant Manai. Yeah, I, I did too that the less militant Manai had gone in and had planted the overrides and the don't tell my other half that I've been here. And the more militant Manai finally figured it out and Justice of Doran figured out that that Manai was going to blow up the ship. And there was this brief moment where it could give commands to all of its subsidiaries before Manai turned on whatever the device was. Yeah. So I had read that fairly clearly as the militant Manai blowing up the ship and also, therefore, being the one who killed On. Sure. And and it's quite clear that's what Breck thinks. But I'm just saying it's possible to conceive of ways in which Breck could have been deceived. And, in fact, Breck is deceived in many occasions in the book. Yeah. There's no omniscient narrator or anything like that. I, I agree with you. I think the the basic idea is that, yeah, the more militant Manai is the one that actually showed up and blew up the ship and kind of, kind of orphaned Breck. 
Well, I find myself now really wanting to reread Ancillary Justice. Uh, so thanks for the conversation, at least for that. I may have to as well. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book, the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. The books I always tend to come back to are actually the sort of children's. It was before there were young adult novels, but they would be characterized as young adult novels, but fantasy young adult novels, basically. And the ones that I really come back to most are probably the Dark is Rising series. It's interesting. five books, really. Susan Cooper, right? Yeah, and I just like I love those books. Susan Cooper. I mean, they won two Caldecott medals. Um, they're really, they're really fantastic books, most of them. And if I had to pick one from there, I would say probably the Grey King. It's it's set in Wales. It's about it's sort of like a um, time travel King Arthur story, and then it fits into the series of of books. But yeah, I really love those yeah. books. What there's Dark is Rising, Green Witch, Silver on the Tree. Are those three? And of them? yeah, then the Grey King is the f- is the fourth one. The first one is called Oversea Under Stone. Yeah, maybe in addition to persuading people that there's a reason to reread Ancillary Justice, you <laughs> may be suggesting to someone to reread some Susan Cooper. So. Yeah, I keep I run into people a lot who like love Harry Potter or Narnia series or whatever, and um, haven't heard of uh, of Susan Cooper. So I feel like that's an important addition to the to the canon, kind of. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.